Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's program. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, you will have the opportunity to ask questions during the question and answer session. You may register to ask a question at any time by pressing the star and one on your touchtone phone. You may withdraw yourself from the queue by pressing the pound key. Please note this call may be recorded. The information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsements, and should not be relied on the connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by the, any person or organization is at such person's or organization's full risk. It is now my pleasure to turn the conference over to Mr. Thomas Wallen. Please go ahead. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Wallen. I'm Editor-in-Chief at Energy Intelligence, and I'd like to welcome you to our May virtual roundtable. Our topic today is the U.S. presidential election, Trump versus Clinton. What does the U.S. election mean for oil and gas? Um, before we begin, I'd just like to set the stage with a, a couple of opening remarks. I think, you know, we should... Uh, uh, emphasize, and th th this is, uh, you know, mainly for, you know, to, to, to set the stage for, for people from uh, an oil and gas background who are not necessarily involved in U.S. politics closely, but I think we should emphasize that the U.S. energy policy is very much entwined with climate and environmental policy, um, and that's been the case for many years now. Um, but in particular, the climate policy has been a primary driving force um, uh, for energy policy in the Obama administration. And the next president will un unavoidably inherit the same tight interconnection between climate and energy issues. issues. Um, uh, and, and that's also likely to shape, shape their policy, whichever path they take. In our meeting today, we want to explore the possible energy policies of the two presumptive nominees, Hillary Clinton for the Democrats and Donald Trump for the Republicans especially as they relate to the oil industry. Inevitably, inevitably, this also will bring in their climate and environmental policies as well. Um, to provide expertise on these various aspects of the discussion, we're fortunate to have with us two of our Washington-based reporters that cover energy and climate policy closely. Um, we have Emily Meredith, who's the Deputy Bureau Chief uh, uh, for us in Washington, who focuses mainly uh, on international energy policy and energy security. Hello, Emily. Um, Hi. Glad you're with us. Hi. Thank and, you. And we also have Elizabeth McGowan, who's our Capitol Hill uh, energy reporter, uh, who focuses on both energy and uh, environmental policy. Um, we had expected to have Lauren Kraft with us on the call, who uh, focuses more on alternative energy and climate. Um, but unfortunately, she's not able to be here. Um, so with that, I'd like to get started. Um, uh, for the first question, I'd like to go first to Elizabeth. Um, in, gen in general, just to set the stage here, Elizabeth, how important do you think energy policy is in, the pres in this presidential election cycle? Okay, well, um, as you said, Tom, I can't emphasize enough how intertwined energy policy is with climate policy in the U.S. at this juncture. And much of that's because of the emphasis the Obama administration 
has put on being a global leading force during the U.S.-Paris negotiations. That was enormous. And also keep in mind that many Americans are not clamoring for energy policy per se because they can fill their gas tanks and heat their homes for bargain prices these days. However, a new poll out of Yale University shows that climate change, clean energy, and environmental protection are top-tier issues among liberal Democrats, and more than half of Republican voters would lean toward a candidate who supports strong action on climate and favors a carbon tax as long as it's matched by a tax cut somewhere else. But all of that being said, this 2016 presidential election might not be about energy policy, but it matters for energy policy because it's between one candidate, Hillary Clinton, who would continue and likely strengthen Obama's initiatives, and another, Donald Trump, who could conceivably begin dismantling all of those on day one of his presidency. So now I'll turn it over to Emily for her comments. Uh, just very briefly on this, in terms of the international and intergovernmental focus, um, as Elizabeth said, a lot of that is related to the international um, agreement on climate change that was struck in Paris last year. And you know the way we see this in Washington right now, um, you know, two weeks ago there was an EU delegation that came to the states and um, to focus specifically on energy security, a lot of what excuse me, came out of that um, was related to sort of codifying these low-level intergovernmental agreements, um, basically to get some bureaucratic inertia underway so that if you had a Trump president come in, not everything would be um, necessarily lost in terms of the international focus. Um, but so that's, that's what you know, there's a lot of concern over um, from certain foreign governments. And then separately to the extent that a U.S. president um, might be willing to take supportive action for the domestic oil industry, um, which is really suffering, there are obviously implications there for international oil markets. Okay, well, thanks for that. Um, Elizabeth, let's talk a little bit about more about Trump. I mean, you know, he is a, he's a new and highly disruptive force in American politics. I think that's very clear. But what can we, we say um, more clearly about his likely energy policy as president? OK, well, not to be too glib, but actually very little, because he is a wild card. Um, you know, he's not a politician. He's a New York real estate magnet, former host of a TV reality show. And um, he's run on the slogans of America winning and making America great again. And it's a little difficult to parse policy out of slogans like that. So it's interesting that he did um, choose a, at least one energy advisor, uh, Congressman Kevin Kramer out of North Dakota, which is interesting because he's from the heart of the Bakken formation in North Dakota. So he has seen this energy boom and the bust. So he's very tuned into to, um, that part of our economy. Um, and Trump has expressed an interest in maintaining jobs for energy workers. So he's clearly a backer of US energy independence. And the shale boom is, is an enormous part of that. So one would think he would also back the explosion of jobs in the wind and solar energy, um, which was boosted by the, produc the production tax credits that Congress approved for renewables uh, last December. 
Trump also talks about putting coal miners back to work, but it's hard to imagine he means back in the coal mines when cleaner natural gas is displacing coal as a fuel of choice. So it will be interesting to see what he does with, with job formation if he lets some of those coal workers you know, get trained to go into the renewables or some other avenue so they can stay in the, um, in the workforce. Let's see, if he wins and both chambers of commerce, excuse me, both chambers of Congress remain Republican majority, it'll be interesting to see what energy initiatives are made and on the legislative front instead of being done by executive fiat, as Obama has pretty much been forced to do. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Elizabeth. Let's let, let's Emily, let's talk a little bit about uh, sort of Trump's, you know, foreign policy. Um, you know, he said that uh, the Iran nuclear agreement is a bad deal and he'll renegotiate it. He's also made very negative comments about Muslims. How will these things play out in foreign policy of a Trump presidency? You know, how, how, how might that also impact oil? Look, I mean, again, and the very short answer is that we don't know. But we are starting to see the Trump campaign try to move past, you know, some of his more inflammatory rhetoric. Um, you know, he's the party's presumptive nominee now, right? And so Trump's foreign policy speech at the end of last month centered around this America first idea, but on foreign policy that translates to essentially taking a tougher look at whether U.S. engagement and spending overseas directly and tangibly translates to advancing American interests. Um, and if the U.S. could use American dollars better, to a better effect at home, you know, maybe it should do so. We're starting to see this evolve a little bit further. Last week on the Hill, um, I started to hear some Republicans you know, basically trying to take this turn and saying his mostly, that his most inflammatory statements are really the more passionate rhetoric from a candidate who's hearkening back to an era where when the interventionist neoconservative foreign policy school of thought um, didn't really have the same weight as it did in the presidency of George W. Bush. Um, and that you know, also fits well with the idea that Americans don't really want a massive ground war. Um, so now in terms of what that means for something like the Iran deal specifically, which obviously there are big um, implications for oil markets, you know, there are real questions about whether the U.S. could put sanctions back on in the same way. Um, it's worth remembering that over the summer there were real doubts about the Europeans walking away from the existing structure, and that was part of the motivation for some of the lawmakers that supported the deal, was this belief that the Europeans would no longer support it. Um, and, you know, it can be hard to tell with Trump. So when he says he wants to renegotiate this deal, you know, he said in an interview published last night um, with Reuters that he wanted to renegotiate the climate agreement. Um, it's, it's hard to know the extent to which that is expressing frustration with the current president, which for a member of the other party is always a good political move, um, and then also just kind of banking on his, you know, the frame of his, um, of his candidacy, which is, I'm a businessman, I'm a good negotiator, you know, a win for America, this kind of stuff. So, so it can be a little bit hard to tell whether him saying, 
I'm going to renegotiate means I'm going to walk away from X, Y, or Z and totally scrap you know, the existing framework. Yeah, is it policy or is it posturing? Yeah, obviously. I mean, it, that's the trouble with all campaigns, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Elizabeth, back to you. Um, on climate, you know, Trump is on record as a climate change skeptic. And, um, but as, as Emily just pointed out, he's also a deal maker. Um, is there any scope for common ground on carbon policy between Trump uh, and Democrats? Yeah, um, actually, there could be, and there has been for a while. We, we all know about cap and trade, which was actually an idea invented by the Republicans. Um, unfortunately, it's gone down in flames in Congress the last time in 2009, shortly after Obama was elected. And it is a mechanism to control carbon dioxide emissions. <clears throat> but another option is passing an economy-wide carbon law. And that would be the legislative branch taking initiative, Congress, and it would be in lieu of pursuing this piecemeal approach that Obama has done because he couldn't make um, inroads with, com with uh, Congress. Now, a carbon law, which can go in several different directions, it's flexible, which makes it appealing to a lot of people. It allows market-based solutions. And it doesn't have to be a, a tax hike, which is um, been toxic for many people. They hear tax and they shut down. But if the money is collected and pumped back, pumped back into the economy or offset via a separate tax cut, it could be successful. Uh, British Columbia you know, up in Canada is an example that is they have successfully demonstrated a revenue neutral carbon tax. So it, it does live. Um, the carbon tax could be part of a comprehensive tax reform. That's a topic many in Congress mention but don't act on. So it could be designed to give energy companies certainty by incorporating a tax that rises steadily and predictably so there aren't a lot of surprises. But to ensure its passage, companies such as ExxonMobil, which have supported some sort of carbon tax for years, would have to make their support known and have to sort of be the lead dog to get Congress you know, moving on something like this. And I just want to point out that an example of how Obama's piecemeal approach can be jeopardized um, early this year, the Supreme Court froze his signature clean power plan. And it's a plan to rein in greenhouse gases from power plants. It's in limbo now because of this action by the Supreme Court. So of course, shortly afterward, one of the justices, Anthony Scalia, died in February. So there's an opening on this nine-member court. Uh, if Trump wins the presidency, he'll likely support or appoint a replacement justice who would vote with a majority to kill the Clean Power Plan. Uh, with the Clinton presidency and Supreme Court appointment, the Clean Power Plan would likely live. So it just shows you how executive fiat is very tenuous. It can um, fall apart when a, when a justice dies and another one isn't appointed immediately. And I also just think it's important to point out that language matters um, when these conversations, we've had this sort of toxic environment on Capitol Hill. So when it comes to uh, the way energy policies are framed, language matters. I'll repeat myself. 
Um, recently, I heard House Member Paul Tonko, he's a Democrat from New York, and he was speaking at an energy efficiency forum last week. And he talked about how some people keep talking about this war on coal, and it becomes this mantra. And his quip was, was the automobile a war on horses? So his point is that science and technology evolved, and change might be scary, but it's necessary. So entering these new sorts of policies can be a little frightening, because it means change, but it can be done. Okay, and then in terms of Trump himself, I mean, is there anything, I mean, I know this, you, you both sort of sketched out this sort of uh, uncertainty uh, that's sort of the, I guess, the key feature of him from a policy, energy policy perspective, but is there anything to make us believe he's, you know, even though he's a climate skeptic, that he would be, you know, more willing to, to, to go in this kind of a, a direction to try to d develop some legislation? Well, I think... Yes, because, I mean, if the, the, the people on Capitol Hill have been reluctant to support him because they don't know him. He's, a, he's an icon. He's a New York icon, but he's not somebody they deal with. They're, you, you know, they move in a pretty small circle. He's a deal maker, like you said earlier, and I think that he, if he latches on to something, he would be looking for a way to make this work. And that advisor he um, selected, Kevin Kramer from North Dakota, has indicated that this is a possibility and a carbon tax. And that, for instance, the money collected could be used to help with devising carbon sequestration or something so that fossil fuels can continue to be used. So, you know, the art of the deal is just that. And I haven't met a legislator yet who is not open to a deal. So that could, um, I, I don't think he's closed off any option. It's, it's just worth noting that um, overhauling the tax code has been a huge priority for House Speaker Paul Ryan for years. And so that's, when we talk about a carbon tax and why there's a chance now, I mean, the context is if Republicans were in charge, you know, the wing of the Republican Party that wants the Republican Party to have a stance on climate, you know, because they're worried about looking sort of anti-science or something like that, they see a Trump president as possibly more willing, I don't know if they see or they hope, but possibly more willing to, you know, accept a predictable, you know, carbon tax policy because it would be in the context of a tax reform, a broad tax reform. So, so that's that's sort of the background to this idea. Yeah, and we also know that Trump is is one for grand gestures and uh, you know big, you know something big and impressive. So, um, anyway, well, let's move along. There's some more ground we want to cover before we turn it over to questions from our audience. Um, Elizabeth, uh, back to you. The you know the common assumption is that Clinton. And, um, Clinton's energy policy would look a lot like the quote-unquote all of the above energy policy of the Obama, that Obama has advocated. Um, is that a fair assumption, or might her policy take a new direction, and how so? Well, I think all of the above is very likely, seeing as she is pretty much the consummate centrist. Um, I 
as First Lady, Secretary of State, and Senator, she's had a lot of exposure to energy issues on local, national, and international levels. So she's, she's not a rookie. She has seen 180 degrees on this, and she has um, you know, her own insights. Um, with, with fuel economy, it's likely she'd go beyond the 54.5 mile per gallon target that um, Obama has set for, I believe, 2025. Um, guessing the Atlantic Ocean would stay off limits for offshore drilling. Um, the Obama administration withdrew that just recently in its most recent five-year plan, and it, it's hard to get that back in until they do their next iteration. Um, and the Arctic also, by default or policy, is perhaps on its way to being off limits. But surely, um, with the Gulf of Mexico would remain in play, I think that Clinton is a realist about where we get a lot of our um, fossil fuel supply there. And let's see, she will, she's going, she's also, you have to keep in mind, she's going up against a growing and more sophisticated keep it in the ground movement. And those activists are wanting to make this giant leap to renewables and keep fossil fuels in the ground. So it's going to be interesting to see how she responds to that. Um, she, that will be part of her balancing drilling on federal lands and energy security, because that is a tricky balance. And it, it keeps evolving. It's not the same as it was five years ago. It's not the same as it was 10 years ago. And no doubt, renewables will continue steady growth because clean tech is a major part of her platform. So she's, I'm, I don't know what she could do beyond those tax credits that Congress granted. Those were quite generous back in December. They're over five years, and they taper off. But she, you know, I don't know what she would be looking for. But clean tech is very near and dear to her heart, and she will be looking for avenues to bump um, renewables so that they are more than the 5% of our energy supply that they are now. So it, it will be interesting. OK, th thanks for that, Elizabeth. So, so Emily, on foreign policy, Clinton is generally seen as more hawkish and interventionist than Obama. And this seems to extend to energy as well. Um, what can we expect from her? on the international side. Yeah, I mean, I think that characterization is, is fair to a point. You know, she voted in favor of action in Iraq um, under George W. Bush when she was a senator. She advocated for wider deployment of troops in Afghanistan as Secretary of State. She pushed quite openly for intervention in Libya um, when she was also in that role. And, and after leaving that, you know, she called for arming Syrian rebels. Um, and then uh, later for, you know, she was a proponent of um, stronger action um, <coughs> from Washington on Syria. You know, in the office, that we've thrown around words like conservative or maybe traditional to try to different, differentiate her from Obama. She's more a child of the Cold War, um, viewing America as like a righteous superpower that should use its military might uh, to advance its interests. Um, but maybe the term doesn't matter and hawkish is, is completely fair if, if those traditional views mean she's more prepared to use force in order to demonstrate might or underscore, you know, um, underscore credibility. You know, now on 
On energy, the track record we have is to look at primarily is her time at State Department, um, where she established the Bureau of Energy Resources and also um, brought in a, a climate negotiator in-house um, to focus on the international accords. Um, that's, the Bureau of Energy Resources is sometimes seen as you know, a soft power thing, fostering stability in other nations, you know, the same way like advancing healthcare interests would. Um, but Clinton actually, she says she set that up in part, partly um, as a result of seeing Russian gas supplies to Eastern Europe cut off in 2006 and 2009. Um, that bureau was also used to really try to figure out how to convince um, American friends and allies that um, everything would be okay internationally if people started um, not buying as much Iranian crude in the first term of the Obama administration. That really paved the way for the more aggressive sanctions. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's we can say that you know, this, she is, she has this track record of viewing energy as a foreign policy tool. Um, so I think, I think it's fair to say that that's something we should be keeping in mind. It's something she's sort of keenly attuned to um, on that front. Okay, th thanks, Emily. Um, one more question for you, Emily, before we go to the audience. Um, do you think Clinton will be more aggressive or less aggressive than Obama on climate policy and regulation of greenhouse gases? Where, where, how do you see that dimension? Yeah, I mean, look, if we have a, a President Clinton um, or, or a second President Clinton, uh, she's, she's necessarily going to have to be stricter than Obama because of where we are in this place and time. You know, the current greenhouse gas mitigation strategies don't get the U.S., don't get the world um, to where it needs to be to reduce emissions to stay within these, you know, defined goals, right? Um, so a recent example um, is the federal government now believes that methane releases from natural from oil and gas installations um, can be a much greater problem than it previously did. So that means, you know, Clinton is very likely to issue tighter regulations, um, tighter restrictions. You know, we saw the Obama administration move very recently. Um, but that doesn't touch on the existing facilities that are already out there. So President Clinton, I think, would be very, um, very likely to act there. And then, you know, on the international side, I mean, the way the Paris Agreement works is everybody comes back to the table in a couple of years. I mean, Clinton is going to be enacting policies that demonstrate the U.S. wants to move to stay within a tighter, you know, um, degree increase, right, for the international agreement. So, so yeah, I think, you know, just necessarily somebody who shares Obama's goal of mitigating climate change um, and forestalling it is going to have to enact stricter policies to sort of get where they, they see that we need to be. Okay, great. Well, thank you for that. Um, let's let's go to uh, Savannah. If you could come back and um, uh, explain how the uh, members of the audience can ask questions. Thank you. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, press the star and one on your touchtone phone. You may withdraw your question from the queue by pressing the pound key. Again, to ask a question, press star and one. We'll pause a moment to allow questions to queue.
Do you have any questions at this point? At this time, we have no questions. Okay. Well, let me let me just uh, move the discussion along a little further. Um, Elizabeth, you know, I think this is something on everybody's mind. Um, you know, how much can can either of uh, these candidates achieve as president, given the highly polarized state of uh, the U.S. political system? Well, you know, I think that there are four key words here. As, as president, do not ignore Congress. If you look historically, members of Congress, no matter what party they were from, loved Bill Clinton because he made them feel like a million bucks. When you left the room, even if it wasn't your idea, he made it seem like it was your idea. He had a way of communicating with people. Now, Obama, that the feedback has not been the same. You, you listen to legislators, and they complain that he's too distant and that he did not embrace them. They're politicians. They love to be embraced. So that that's why you look at someone like Trump, you know, the art of the deal. He would be in there having roundtables with them, inviting them, listening to them, all of that. And Clinton the same way. I mean, she... She was the first lady. She was the secretary of state. She was a senator. She knows how all of this rolls, so she would be, I think both of them are conditioned to come in and work with people if they want to get Congress on board. I'm not saying by you know inviting someone to your living room, you're going to be able to make um, supreme climate policy, but it sure helps. Emily, do you have anything to add on that? No, not. I mean, I think that's that's spot on. You know, I would just say both candidates are sort of, um, they both have very high unfavorability uh, ratings. But, but what you hear from people in D.C. is that when they sit at a table with them, I mean, Republicans who do not like the Clintons, right, they, people give, um, Hillary Clinton a lot of sort of props for how she acted as a senator. So it's it's worth keeping in mind what Elizabeth's saying, even as we're hearing everything about you know these very high unfavorability ratings and you know to think that that would translate to necessarily somebody who is isolated in the White House and isn't going to talk to anyone. You know that's not that's not the same thing. Um, so just to keep that in mind. Okay. Okay. Thanks. So do we have any questions now from the audience? We do. Uh, we'll take our first question from Leslie Preston. Please go ahead. Hi. I basically just have a question on Hillary Clinton's uh, position on fracking. She seems to have pivoted a little bit more towards the anti-camp throughout the campaign, and I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on that. Elizabeth, yeah. What, why don't you take that? By answering that just kind of quickly, um, you have to remember that with Bernie Sanders still in the race, uh, that issue has risen to the top because, as I mentioned earlier, that Keep It in the Ground movement is quite sophisticated. And um, I, I wrote a piece where I think I used the sentence, Clinton might be left her for longer. Quite frankly, she's, um, 
I think that what she's doing is she's she's realizing. I mean, the fracking with the realization about the methane, it has made her reconsider from an energy security standpoint. I mean, everybody wants fracking to work because it provides jobs and it gives us fuel that we did not have earlier. However, the reality is the science has shown us something different, and we have to address that. So I, I don't know where she will land, but I, don't, um, I think that's going to be something that she's going to put a lot of thought into. Yeah, and, and this is Emily. I mean, I would just say I think it makes sense to take her seriously um, when she starts to lean more anti-fracking. And, and the reason I say that, you know, it's very easy to look at her record over at State Department and say, well, look, in 2010, you know, she did voice, she did say she was inclined to support Keystone. But then if you go back and look at those comments, you know, she was portraying it as a choice between importing oil from Canada, um, which is close and friendly, to, you know, a choice between Canada and the Mideast, where there's a lot more that can go wrong. Um, and obviously, we've had massive domestic production growth since then. Um, on the natural gas side, like Elizabeth said, the methane issue is, is a big one. And, and her rhetoric is, has really stepped up, but that is her rhetoric. I mean, in her 2014 book, she wrote that she thought she, there needed to be more regulations for methane. So I think when you're thinking about her, it makes sense to take the more um, pro-regulatory, more climate-driven policies quite, quite seriously, rather than view her as sort of a flip-flopper who goes back and forth when things are politically convenient. OK, thanks. Do we have, do we have other questions? Yes, we'll take our next question from Namdi Okafor. Please go ahead. OK, uh, thank you, Tom, and thank you for the presenters. Uh, just wondering, uh, we've been talking about policy, and then we're not sure the kind of policy that uh, Donald Trump or maybe uh, Clinton will come up with. I'm wondering um, what will be their mindset uh, with regards to uh, the energy policies around the different corridors. You have the Gulf of Guinea. You have the uh, Syrian work, which is basically all centered around energy demand between Europe and the rest of uh, the Western world. And then you have the Arab world as well. One is beginning to wonder, you know, the kind of um, uh, mental picture that a Clinton or a Trump administration will bring to the table in this phase of uh, interest to the Western world. Okay, thanks. Emily, do you want to speak to the to the, that to sort of geostrategic uh, uh, attitude of Clinton and Trump towards uh, you know key energy regions of the world? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's a little bit hard to tell on Trump, right? He's made these statements that sort of indicate he's willing to use U.S. energy um, consumption as a club, right? Saying like we don't we're not going to buy oil from Saudi Arabia if they don't pay for us, for our security interests. Um, but I don't know. It sort of is hard to imagine how that plays out um, once he is a president. Um, that's a totally separate thing. Um, and then, you know, in terms of Clinton, like I said before, you know, we, 
we do have this sort of lens um, into the or this sort of this window into the idea that she very much views energy as a key geostrategic concern. Um, so like right now, you know, the US is lobbying really heavily against the Nord Stream 2 project that would bring Russian gas um, into Europe directly to Germany and allow it to bypass the overland route through Ukraine. Um, and there's you know, a lot of reasons to think that Clinton would continue a very heavy lobbying effort against that. I mean, she's, she is very attuned to you know, how energy flows and the fact that it is a massive driver of foreign policy, right? Because everybody wants to turn the lights on. I mean, but that being said, it's also worth keeping in mind that um, if you take this approach to energy security, um, viewing it very much as in tandem with international security, that can also be a reason why you would push very, very hard on climate and renewables. Because you're saying, okay, listen, like that, that necessarily diversifies people's portfolios and it lessens geopolitical risk. So um, just in terms of other, other ways to think about it, I think that's an important point. Any particular comments about West Africa or the Eastern Med or the Middle East that were, you know, the, 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 our questioner brought up? Yeah, I mean, that's getting a little bit out of my territory, quite frankly. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay, th thanks. Is it, uh, do, we have, um, do we have another question? At this time, we have no further questions. Okay, well, let, let me, I, we're almost at the end of our time here, so let me just wrap it up with one more uh, question for Elizabeth, I guess, and Emily, feel free to chime in too if you want, but um, does the oil industry have an obvious candidate in this campaign, and, and how influential might the industry be in the presidential election? Boy, I guess first thing I do, I, I don't, think there is an obvious candidate because I think that this, the industry tends to split its donations because they want to be, they want to have a seat at the table no matter whose table it is. So um, I, I guess um, maybe Trump might have a little bit of an edge because he's a businessman and people, business feels comfortable with a, with a, with a business person. But um, quite frankly, any either candidate could, we'll go back to the, the carbon tax that I talked about, either candidate could promote that. And this is a place where industry could step up to the table and have a voice that would be, you know, show their support and help guide it. They don't necessarily have to write the legislation but they can have a lot of input, as industry often does with all laws that are written. So I guess I could say that it could um, break either way. And um, you know, the, the renewables is also a, a big part of that. I mean, the world is changing, so you, there's a balance there, and I think the candidates are aware of that. The constituents are aware of that. So you need to keep that in mind. 
This is Emily. I would, I mean, that's a very um, like long-term, forward-looking thing. I would say that in the very near term, um, because of the way Obama has used executive action to um, execute his overall, you know, climate-focused energy policy. If we had a President Trump, it's easier to imagine a President Trump that just that a stops the new rules and regulations coming down the pipeline, you know, like new ozone restrictions that affect refineries, like the um, vehicle fuel efficiency rates. I mean, all of that stuff sort of flows with him in the in the near term. The methane rules as well, um, and then and then also because it's all been done through executive action he can just stop enforcing the existing regulations. And that's very simple. So it's easy, you know, on the one hand, it could cut both ways in the long term. On the other, in terms of, like, immediately what provides some relief, what relieves a little bit of this tension, it's, frankly, probably Trump um, on that stuff. Right, but then we have to consider um, if the Senate flips to the, de to the Democrats, then they have a way to actually pass legislation so that's why it's hard to predict because the House will likely not flip, but the Senate will. So, like Emily said, I mean, it's there's a short term, long term, with with you know Trump maybe helping the oil industry initially. But I also bring up the constituents because I don't think stopping all of, of Obama's initiatives is going to sit well with the people, and something will happen to change that. Um, just halting everything would would not last very long. Okay. Well, uh, sounds sounds like there's 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 definitely some difference in perspective there between the two of you. I think with with that we really have to wrap it up. It's a, you know our time is out is up. Um, I'd like to thank Emily and Elizabeth for their insights and thank uh, the audience for their questions. And we're, we will be back in June with another virtual roundtable. We haven't decided the topic yet, but um, um, we'll be uh, announcing that um, by email and sharing that with you. So with that, um, thank you everyone, and, 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 and that, this concludes the call. Great. Thank you.